Hi, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. What is going on? What is going on? This is a well. We're we're recording on a Tuesday, which is uh, unfortunate. My schedule for is what? all crazy this week. Yeah, to apologize to uh, mostly just to like <laughs> Ben Ben and Inton on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two of our most loyal listeners. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I, 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 there's podcasts I listen to where the routine is so important to me that actually it ruins my week if they're not ready on the day. Life is tough, huh? Yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's a bummer sometimes. So I apologize. <laughs> but is that, why am I apologizing? That's it's so Canadian it's, of me. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's also funny that for some people, the the podcast being on time and they they listen to one podcast on Wednesday and another podcast. But for most people, podcasts are like, oh, I haven't had the time to catch up. Sorry, I haven't listened to it. And they, people apologize for not being <clears throat> up to date. That's true. And it, it, so it, I think for nerds, things that come in on a regular schedule in a, in a feed with push notifications is bliss. And for most people, it's like, oh, another thing I have to keep track of. I'm not sure if it's nerds. I think it's like just a particular <clears throat> type of person that's enjoying listening to you know two friends every week uh and certainly yeah like when but you d- you don't think it's a nerdy thing to have a system to view content at certain times of the week uh like well the thing is that that system has existed on television for like 100 years and it, like yeah. the idea of things and even before that there'd be like bar nights That's true. where yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. show you know it's trivia thursdays yeah exactly yeah. yeah, so it's not like the idea of routine uh, is actually kind of that was the main reason I always pushed for us to do this weekly. Not only routine for our listeners, but routine for us as um, as performers. Because as soon as you get out of the routine, like I, you know, when I perform as when I do performance art, if I do it every week, it's not stressful. But if I do it, um, you know, once and then it's a three month break. After three months, I'm incredibly stressed out. I've forgotten. Are you nervous then? Yeah, no, but I've also f- just forgotten all of the behaviors that were just yeah, uh, yeah, subconscious. Yeah. And so- suddenly now everything's conscious. And so I-, I worry about every decision. And it's like, I'm not on autopilot. So um, there's a certain misery <laughs> to, to that <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. But uh, like, it's much easier if things are routine. Like, I don't worry about brushing my teeth. It just happens. But there's, there's something also about breaking routine that... Uh, if you get stuck in a routine, it can get dull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the depressing thing. Uh, in or you know, the cynic in me would say that. Also, it's sad to hear when people say like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't caught up on your podcast." Like, please don't listen to this if you're if you feel obligated, because <laughs> I don't want to become like the bad art opening. Of, we're, we're like the, <laughs> the we're like the broccoli of food. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know I have to eat it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Consider it junk food. Indulge as much as you like. It's not going to be bad for you. I don't know. Yeah, if 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 you feel like you have to help someone in the hospital and they really need your help, but you feel <laughs> obliged to listen to the podcast, yeah, there's different priorities. Yeah. As you've always said, we're not asking anything because uh, this is kind of just for you and I, and then we're, la- we're we're happy that others are enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so this week we want to talk about performance art. Well, you do. You yeah. You've been you've been asking to talk about this, and it's like. Uh, well, we did a lot of technology episodes, so I thought it would be good to have a, a focus on art. Yeah. Well, there are two. There's a. There's a. There's like I want to weave in technology, though. It's impossible for me not to. Um, 
And last week was like an important technology week that we can't, we just can't ignore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in the history of performance art, it's actually going to be, an, it's interesting to weave it in. Uh, but of course, I'm alluding to the launch of the new iPhone, iPhone 10 or X, if you don't know how to read uh, Roman numerals. <laughs> um, but yeah, performance art, uh, I'll get back to I- the iPhone. So just stay tuned. All you tech listeners. <laughs> We're going to find a way to talk about the iPhone. Well, here's here's the news on the iPhone. We're all going to get it. No. who? Ha- I mean, first of all, in Canada, it's like $1,500. So it's the same price I would have paid for a laptop um, about three or four years ago. Uh, it, you know, so like that's not for the base model. The base model is though, still $1,300. That's like is, you can you could you can but run Jeremy, a business. You're, you're rich beyond, <laughs> beyond our wildest imaginations. You can, this is like a, buying a cup of coffee for you. Uh, a very expensive cup of coffee. A pretty good, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be like one that I can only buy once a year. Certainly, like the, have a, an amount of money in my b- budget for making technology investments, and it's not. But you you tweeted that for your performances, the the iPhone would be the best device for AR. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's just get right so into optimized. it. So optimized. <laughs> But so we'll should, right. we, should we just do a? Because I thought the, the the new iPhone brings up so many privacy questions, so we could kind of talk about that as well. Well, here's the, here's my and promise. we can save performance art for no, another no, no. episode. We don't have to save performance art because the new iPhone is about performance art. Okay. okay. So, and I'm going to talk to you about why that is. That's that. Uh, that's the spoiler alert on my good point. But uh, yeah. So the so the new iPhone, like, what's exciting about it? For me as an artist is um, that they took a bunch of technologies that I had been using as an artist a few years ago, um, like software and hardware, and they managed to miniaturize it and put it in a phone. Now, when they when I was using this stuff three or four years ago, Apple How bought... How many kilos would it save for you when you travel? <laughs> yeah, it'd save a lot of kilos, except I have to now carry, you still have to carry a laptop around. Anyway, um, they, bu- they bought two companies. One was called PrimeSense, and for those of you who don't know, PrimeSense was an Israeli company that was the uh, creator of the Kinect camera, the original Kinect camera, which used a system uh, called Structured Light. That is, it, it would project... Um, these little IR dots all over the surfaces of the world and your body. And then it had an IR camera that would pick up those dots and they had algorithms to transform that uh, through a maybe, service called OpenNI into, into skeletal tracking. I, I want to simplify it for some people. Mm-hmm. Like IR is infrared and so oh, yeah, sorry. It's, it's, it's light that our eyes don't see. Yeah. Uh, basically light is a spectrum that, that we see them as different <laughs> colors. And there's yeah. parts of the spectrum that are far on the left and on the right that the human eye can't see, but you can uh, use it to control your TV or to make a 3D model of someone, scan them. Um, basically, they put a tiny connect into the, the phone. So yeah. you know how with the connect you could use your body to control the a game? And here uh, you can t- control your, the phone with your face. Yeah, it gives the phone the ability to see depth. Now, yeah, yeah. that's not the only thing it does. So that's the that's the hardware layer. That's um, two hundred bucks extra. Yeah, and that's the prime sense. Bucks. Yeah, and that, and that was like a billion dollar investment. Or actually, I don't think it was that expensive. I think they didn't pay that much for prime sense. Maybe I don't remember the sale price, but maybe one hundred fifty. This million. this all goes back to that video that the guy who hacked the Wii motes and like uh, put them oh, on his TV. Yeah, and John 
Johnny, it's Johnny Wu, or is it Johnny Wu? I don't want to get that wrong. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. No, yeah, yeah, we will. But uh, he no, he started not, working for Google later or for Microsoft. The guy's name is Johnny. I'm just trying to get his. Oh, Johnny Johnny Chung Lee. Uh, okay. Yeah, but everyone just knows him as Johnny. And yeah, he did Johnny Lee. Uh, he Johnny Remote. He, uh, yeah, he did a lot of stuff with the Wiimote, but also with the Kinect, and then famously Microsoft hired him, and he worked on the Kinect team um, that brought out the Xbox, uh, the new Kinect, Kinect 2, which uses a different technology than the original Kinect, um, uses what's called time of flight. We won't get into that. Back to Apple. Um, Apple then bought another company that, so I was using this other software called FaceShift, and they made software that allowed you to use a Kinect to track the, the minute sort of muscular movements of your face. Like, yeah, because it, it, apps could already kind of track your face, like Snapchat, but now it's more detail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could use um, the RGB image to do like computer vision-based tracking on this the flat well, RGB image, but which is a, good enough for most purposes. It is, but like if you turn your head like twenty degrees, that's too much, and it, it loses recognition of your face. It also one of the biggest problems with face tracking in general is shadows from different light sources, because the way RGB face tracking traditionally worked before computer vision models, uh, sorry, before deep learning or machine learning models emerged to like correct for this, but originally it simply used like what was called feature tracking. So it'd look for dark areas in an image, like, oh, there's two holes there. Those must be eyes. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> then there's like a dark shadow below those. That's the nose. And would, that's how it would construct um, its sort of concept of so reality. So you could fool it with weird makeup on your face and it would think your nose was uh, two inches to the left. Yeah. Now, of course, all that's mostly resolved now with like more uh, rigorous training models. And there was training for those computer vision models. It was just like the data set was small. Now the but, but really roughly huge. said before it was a photographic process and now it's really sensing the features of your face in 3D. Well, what happens when you have a 3D image is, yeah, and an IR image, infrared, is that you no longer have to worry as much about sh shadow and light and also you can... It works in the dark just as yeah, well. Yeah, and you can tell orientation, like what angle things are added more precisely. And this thing also trains... The really interesting thing about FaceShift is it used a training model that was tied to you, the individual. So it wasn't made for everyone. It was tailored to you. And so when you set it up, you had to train it um, by like recording yourself doing all of these different faces and rotating your head. And so and you train it with the depth camera. So it just got this idea about who you were. So it couldn't it didn't work with anyone else but you. It was, it was just for you. And then what they could do with that is be even more accurate because they'd say like, well, I'm not looking for Raphael or Joan Jonas or Carolee Schneeman or Joseph Boys. I'm looking for Jeremy Bailey, right? And Jeremy Bailey looks like this. And I know what he looks like when he's smiling, when he's frowning, when he's laughing. Because on other vision models, even, even if you like, it would be funny when I'd perform, I might laugh or smile and it would lose my face because it was like, I don't recognize this scary, you know, teeth uh, monster. So it was just like way better. Anyway, Apple bought this and they were selling this to, they're trying to sell this company to Hollywood Studios or, they, or this company was advertising themselves to Hollywood Studios to do face tracking for, for animation in the movies. Because the idea... 
for like know, those actors who do uh, yeah, like Planet of the Apes or Gollum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the idea being like, you don't have to draw dots all over your face anymore. We can just do it with a depth camera. It's like way easier. Or for lower budget films, like why invest in these expensive uh, motion tracking rigs when you can do this at home with just a Kinect? Um, so anyway, that didn't really take off, uh, probably. Uh, I had a license to this product. I bought it. Then Apple bought it. And this is like a common story because Apple bought that year three different pieces of software I was using. The others, like uh, <laughs> Mateo. On to you. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the whole Apple mission is just to boycott Jeremy Bates. <laughs> <laughs> well, they shut that. They shut them all down. So they buy and then shut it down. So I've been waiting for three or four years for it to resurface in an Apple product. And the iPhone X is that product, and the software is now that API is now part of the AR Kit API, app, you know, API being their the. And you've been an AR artist for what ten years? I've been doing yeah. AR has existed as a term for a few decades, but it wasn't used popularly until the late aughts. But I started doing work with what I didn't call augmented reality, but I called performance for the computer. Uh, in the in the early aughts, uh, around two thousand and three, two thousand four, started doing real time. I'll never get used to that aughts word. <laughs> I love it. It's it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, two thousands. We'll just say. Yeah. That's uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, so I was really excited to see this phone come out. Obviously, I was disappointed by the price, but of course, it'll that depth camera... But it's a tax write-off for you, because it, it, you use it for your work. Yeah, I can, that's true. I can write it off all my taxes. <clears throat> Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Now, one thing that is exciting about the camera and the face tracking is that that allows the phone to do what I was doing in my performances on a laptop with a connect on a tripod <laughs> all, <laughs> all in this like tiny sliver of space so most people probably don't recognize that like even a connect 2 is like bigger than the original connect but a connect 1 is a pretty bulky device to carry around with you um, so the fact that they built this all into this tiny sensor and there have been a few other depth cameras that have come out since the connect and connect 2 that are a little bit smaller like there's one that fits on the back of an iPad but nothing this sort of small and light and portable but- Maybe we can explain uh, your performances for people who haven't seen you perform. Yeah. But um, you usually are on a stage and there's a projection behind you with you with a digital layer on top with playful digital elements around you that enhance your performance. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have assumed that augmented reality wasn't going to come around until we were all wearing glasses. And I've always said that's absurd. You know, it's not about that it's more about the reflection than it is about the gaze and let me, and this is where it kind of starts to tie back to performance but and I'll, and I'll get I'll come back to that point in a little so bit so you were onto something <clears throat> i <laughs> i believe i yeah i wasn't the only it's like not, i'm not the you I should have bought stock in those companies you liked <laughs> i should have i've been saying that since i was like a 10 year old uh, <laughs> my mom would i would always pick stocks for my mom and she, I'd be like mom this stock's gonna just go through the roof <laughs> and I because I'd read the business section every week and anyway and on several occasions these stocks that I would choose like went up a thousand ten thousand percent and she's like why didn't you f- <laughs> why didn't you push me harder about these stocks <laughs> I was like I did I told you I gave you good advice but I'm not gonna put my money on the line I only have an $80 allowance <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh yeah so yeah the idea is that you know and this is the same idea Apple's promoting is that for really, AR is just giving you the perception of reality through, you can see through any device. And in, in my case, I perform on stage with a projection. Um, and so you see me and then you see me in the moder- you know, moderated um, 
uh, in the digitally AR, enhanced yeah, space. Yeah. But for me, uh, you know, early on, it was like because I was making work for the internet or performing online by live streaming. The me of the device is the me that everyone knows anyway. There is no other me, right? <clears throat> the, I'm I am constantly mediated by the digital device, and so you you never get to see the really the physical me. So in those physical performances, I play off of that, right? Like you can see me, and then you can see the the digital. But when I did online stuff, it was just like I am the digital, right? There is no other. <laughs> That'd um, be a good T-shirt. <laughs> I am the digital. It's yeah. a bit uh, rhetorical, but yeah. So in the history of performance, if I can back up, if we want to go there, I don't know. There's more to talk about on the iPhone because, you know, the the, the key thing that well, they released. Can I, I'm curious with this new iPhone and its AR um, yeah. optimizations. It's not that phones couldn't do AR before, but now uh, there's hardware that supports it. The software is optimized. It all works better. Yeah. And um, but my question is, why do you would you still need a laptop for the performance? Well, theoretically, you wouldn't, but the realities of the job require it. I think because here's the thing: like theoretically, you, you could, could write an app for your performance. Exactly. You could just write it all onto the phone, but. Practically, if you needed to make a change based on some variable, which there are many in live performance, and any performer will tell you this, then you would have to recompile the software. <laughs> like you, because you can't edit the software on the phone, you have to use it. You have to use your laptop to create the software. Yeah, and switch. but that's an interesting. That's the interesting problem where the phone is growing up. Yeah, and it, it it's promoted as not just a consumption tool, but actually a creation tool. But then you'll still run into the limits where, oh, I want to add another chapter to the performance. And that's just not possible without a laptop. Yeah. Like what's really frustrating is like, I wish I could. Here's the thing. I dream of a day where I can just walk onto a plane with my phone and like make changes to a performance. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's an app to wash your clothes and there's an app to brush your teeth. and <laughs> Yeah, it's all there together. We're just hanging out. Um, but I still have to do all of my authoring. Like, so as a, as a writer, per se, like maybe writers ha are experiencing the vanguard, right? If you can yeah. write a blog post on your phone, congratulations. Like, you're living I, in the I, future. I do think that it used to be that you needed your laptop for the beefy performance. Uh -huh. And now that the hardware and software on the phone are uh, so optimized, you could have a, a very thin, almost netbook-like thing because the, 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 the performance you need for the performance, this, the, the, the computational performance for your physical performance mm -hmm. will happen on the phone, so yeah. uh, the, the laptop can be a lot lighter. I, hey, don't get me wrong. I'm going to create a performance for the new iPhone for sure because um, I'm going to be able to pick up where I left off. So uh, you're going to have to buy it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I've already convinced myself. In fact, Kristen was like, well, there's no option. <laughs> you know, it's like... Uh, well, I, I noticed this thing. I don't know if it's a sort of a white privilege thing where you, you can afford it, but there's a voice saying, no, no, I don't need it. And then you play <laughs> this game for three months. I don't need this thing. And then you'll find an external reason, like your wife's phone breaks down. So you're like, well, I'll get the new one. Then she can get my old one. And then So here's the funny it, thing. Though. Yeah, like the history of consumer electronics is an interesting one to tie back to the history of performance. And this has been, so the Connect that I alluded to that the iPhone has inside of it, that actually was the most uh, popular consumer electronic device of its year. So ever, 
like up until that point, nothing had ever sold as quickly or on great as great a scale as the original Connect one for the Xbox. Uh, uh, I guess it was for the Xbox 360. Now I always get confused. Yeah, that's right, 360. Because then they went back. That forward. was like around 2010. <coughs> um, uh, no, it was uh, 12. Let's see the exact date of the Connect. I think it could have been 2010 actually. Uh, I remember the Connect promised us that all the gamers would become really healthy because they would move around so much. Right, like they were following. Oh, there was the Wii. Yeah, they were following. They were following the Wii, though. Yeah, you're right. It was 2010. (coughs) Excuse me. And it was. Oh no! Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. No, no, you're right. It was. It was. It was uh, for the 360. Somewhere in that time. (laughs) And of course, the Wii came before that, and it got got into physical gaming. But of course, what you know, no gamer, no company is ever going to make this mistake again because they know that. You know, people who are trying to get are entertaining themselves are lazy, right? No one wants to get up off the couch. How to build a device for a room that has a couch in it is to say is to compete against the couch. <laughs> and I don't know about <laughs> you, but on <laughs> yeah, but maybe on a ten weekend, minutes max. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like it's like putting an exercise machine next to your bed. Like it's just <laughs> it's really hard to compete with, right? Like, <laughs> Anyway, um, maybe that's why, like, in arcades, that kind of, like, physical... Like, remember Dance Dance Revolution in arcades? That was, like, so popular. That was a big hit, yeah. Yeah, because, like, you're basically in a club. I mean, so you should be dancing. Like, you're competing with other dancing venues kind of thing. You you should be moving. You're in front of other people. You want to impress them. Anyway, at home, that just doesn't happen, in my experience. Um, Yeah, so getting right back to consumer electronic releases, though, the Kinect was the most popular ever uh, consumer electronics release. So the first, uh, like, uh, the, the example in the perf- history of performance art that's equal to that was in 1969, and Sony released a device that year um, called the Sony Portapack, and it was like a video camera, the first ever consumer video camera shot in black and white. It was relatively portable, like it had reel-to-reel tape, but that was like in a little purse on your, on, on the, by the side, and then you had this like handheld camera that attached to that. Um, and for the first time, People could record something and play it back, or even play it back in real time as they recorded it. Uh, like there's this when I give artist talks, I always show this ad from the era of like a, a businessman and he's in a tree and he's recording some baby birds. <laughs> like he's up in it, he's like up in a tree in his business suit. It's a ridiculous uh, image in this ad, but I find it funny because you know what it's conjuring is this idea that he's taking. A recording of these birds that he just saw as he was passing home on his way from work or as he was coming up the driveway <clears throat> he's gonna rush in run into the house and say honey kids like check out these little baby birds are right outside I just took a recording on our device and like now we can watch it on TV right <clears throat> look at us we're like making we're making news in our own backyards because prior to that time have access to like a video camera or something like that it was really expensive equipment that only like a television news agency could afford and it would have been like you know a hundred thousand dollars and now it was like in the hands of the average salary man kind of thing so i bring that up because that revolution was actually tied to the history of performance art and it's the reason i'm so excited about the iphone honestly which was like in 19 in the 1960s new ideas were coming out of the art world that were um, that w- you would call now performance art. Um, but at the time, the artists that were making 
the biggest waves called themselves Fluxus artists. <clears throat> that's uh, that seems to be uh, your, your that's like your ground zero. Fluxus. <clears throat> it's my ground zero. About. Yeah, I always talk about it. Prior to Fluxus, there's there's lots of people that influence performance art, but there's general agreement that <clears throat> as a recognized professional practice, it you know outside of a few people like you know Eve Klein jumping out of a window or data poems that like you know were performed or uh you know like uh ballets that like they did at the Bauhaus there were very like the 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 all the pieces didn't quite fit together <clears throat> so it's not that there wasn't performance art before the 1960s and before Fluxus but in the 1960s the Fluxus artists created a, wrote a manifesto that kind of is the foundation of performance art and that manifesto the reason it's brings it all together is it it's kind of a thesis for uh for what why it should exist right and so it's not just what it is but it's like why does it exist and it specifically exists in relationship with feelings of um and, and and as a reaction to art and capital like or money basically mm-hmm. um and specifically against yeah. a, like a, an emerging and there are other movements yeah. that have tried to do this but, but yeah what, what's interesting to me is that there's been many moments throughout human history of uh theater and visual arts coming together yeah and it's only recent that there's this separation of uh, what we call performance art and then there's entertainment it's separate and so uh yeah, well, let me use that. This idea you. that if if you use the body in the art context, you can't be entertaining. Well, uh, part of that actually goes back to that time, you know, which is, and it's tied to the history of entertainment because, as I mentioned, uh, these artists were against the commodification of art, and they believed that art existed. You know, I'm pointing at my head, but inside your head, not on the wall, and it couldn't be commodified, purchased, bought, or sold. Right, like. And that you're by making it a part of your body, you made that impossible because you'd have to like have slavery. And then Abramovich came along and monetized <clears throat> it. Yeah, well, a certain artists came along and ruined things for sure. Um, but like a lot of us still believe in these original ideals. Now, what's interesting is when like the Sony Porter Pack camp comes around, these performance artists at the time were struggling with this very question, like that you just brought up, like. Um, like, you know, well, who's going to spoil this party? And a lot of the conversation involved, like, documentation. Like, so are we going to, you know, are we going to allow documentation of our work? Because then it enters the physical realm, the realm of, you know, the commodifiable. All, right? all this holier-than-thou behavior is very funny. I think I think it, 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 you, you get into this behavior where it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm more pure than you. <laughs> and I think whenever you're into any cult like if you're into macrobiotic food or yoga and then you can no this is the more pure way to yeah. do the downward dog no this is more pure no, no yeah you're, yeah and you're yeah. you're right but like you know like purists that i referred to often are like chris burden famously would do these very dangerous performances right and uh, you know famously when he was in grad school but evil knievel did dangerous performances as well <clears throat> i know but so Chris Burden, though, like, I'll, like I think I believe in what he said, which is like, if I'm gonna have myself shot or if I'm gonna roll over glass, it's gonna be a very different feeling for you to be there in person than for you there to than for you to look at a black and white photograph or in or even a film of that experience, right? But same for Evil Knievel. 
Yeah, yeah, you're. I mean, but except that he was doing way more presentations of his work, right? So Evil Knievel would stage his stunts like multiple times and invite thousands of people. But often performance art happens in a tiny little room. In the case of that shoot performance that I alluded to from Chris Burton, it actually happened while he was in grad school for a room of maybe like 10 people. And so because of the limited access and quite often, as we'll, as I'm going to get into in a, in a short while, the performance wasn't even for another person, but it was for the performer themselves or for a device. Um, you know, there wasn't even anyone present the documentation is going to tell a different story than the thing itself. So like, you know, and Chris Burton did things like he filled a gallery with water yeah. and put like electric cables in it. And then he stood on the ladders and like the only thing it, that exists of that performance is the story of it. Right? Yeah. And it, I, I don't mind any of it. So the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about performances is it, it has a cringe value and a, mm-hmm. and a sort of purest, uh, it has this cultist aspect of like oh and in digital digital art has the same thing oh what well if i'm i'm watching the website offline it's not really the website is it and then you get into these long discussions and it seems some of these things have been already uh, deeply researched in uh, mm-hmm. popular culture so there's the concert which is live and there's the the social media feed and there's the recording and there's the song on YouTube and there's the song on high quality audio mm-hmm. and and all those things coexist and then somehow in the art world it's like no we can't transfer this to any other you can't watch a 16 millimeter film on but that's DVD just that's yeah so, so they but that's not that's only true for about 10 years and then in 1969 as i mentioned the Sony Porta Pack comes out and this is where like why you're cringing at current performance art because it it ignores this basic liberation liberation this moment in the history of art and in these same performers that i just mentioned like these flexes for their realization of their work and their practice right it changes on that day and famously nam june pike walks into a macy's department store in 1969. Now, I say famous because the story's been debunked by a few people, but this is the to- the story that was told. He I always walks- think it's better to keep the story going. It, yeah, yeah. He walks into a Macy's department store. He picks up a camera off the shelf, you know, pays the cashier. Outside, there's a parade going by. He unwraps the camera, records the parade as it passes by outside, and then shows that video in a gallery in Soho later that evening and calls it video art. Now... You might say, like, Jeremy, how's that a performance, right? Well, the act of recording this real-time event, you know, this thing that couldn't be documented, you had to be there, onto video, and playing it back, like, the same, like, very close to the time at which it happened, was a revolutionary act because of that relationship to time and and space, right? Like, the, the immediacy of it. So if performance had to be immediate... The technology that was going to like try and work within that that immediacy was going to be video. But and then you, that, what, what's interesting to me is then is is Nam Jung Paik the revolutionary one or is Sony because Sony was already broadcasting stuff or Philips mm-hmm. twenty years before or whoever invented the TV signal. Yeah. So if if it becomes about this breakthrough in technology, then maybe the, the companies that make and the inventors. They're the ones who are pushing things. Well, so Namjoon Pike threw the first stone, but then artists like... <coughs> well, he know, threw the first stone in art context, but he didn't invent sure. video recording. But then artists like Vito Conchi, Martha Rosler, my contemporaries in Canada, like Colin Campbell and Lisa Steele, they picked up these video cameras 
these video cameras, by the way, were a bit clumsy. And, you know, I often say, like, they ended up, like, people were really excited about it, but they ended up in the junk drawer of the artist studio. However, in the artist studio is where the experiments really kind of took performance art to the next level and where this term it was even more private than a 10 person exactly so it's just really so artists started performing for these cameras yeah i think that's where it gets interesting not the fact that like i walked out of macy's yeah exactly it gets really interesting i mean so like yoko ono and people like uh uh, Namjoon Pike, they were great at building the hype, right? <laughs> but then all these other artists picked up the technology, and it's what they did that I think it makes you know made performance art really exciting. Um, and and again, like makes the type of work that makes you cringe is really far out of date if you consider this relationship well, with technology. I, so what happens though, like in that studio, I just have to say is that people figure out that you can hook the camera up to a monitor and watch yourself on TV in real time. So you can look at a reflection of yourself on television. And this is like, that is the most important, exciting gesture like in the history of performance. And yes, like Sony made that possible because they put a video output port on the camera so you could monitor what you were recording. But turning the camera towards oneself, that was the, an artist was the first person to do that. An artist was the first person to flip the monitor around and look at themselves as they performed and perform for their reflection. <clears throat> and to also, what, in that thing, reflection, it, comment on the media. This, uh, what's interesting about a video reflection is that uh, left and right are not flipped, mm-hmm. and left and right in a mirror are flipped. Yeah. So that's a significant dif- difference. And so it's, it's a recorded reflection. But there's another thing here, a little bit unrelated. It's something my brain can't understand. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a mirror, left is right and right is left, is flipped. So if you part your hair on the left and you see a photo, all of a sudden it's on the right. Anyway, what I don't understand is why you're not upside down in a mirror. (laughs) That's funny. I saw a film about that (laughs) earlier this week. And I've I've had friends, scientists explain it, and I kind of understand. And you draw a puppet, and then you draw the reflected puppet, and... But I still, at a very physical level, I don't understand why I'm not upside down in the mirror. But it's just because in, of in how a lens, li- you're upside down. Isn't it how light functions? Because like, if you put the mirror on the ground, you're upside down. Yeah, it it it's funny. Like if you explain it, I understand it. And ten minutes later, <laughs> I don't understand it anymore. It's it's right. one of those things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a. Fi- I literally went to a. Fi- it's the Toronto International Film Festival just ended here in Toronto, and I went to a film last week, and that was the whole premise of the film <laughs> was that question how come i can't yeah it's a funny question anyway uh there's probably like a philosophical because even a pinhole here. camera throws you upside down yeah but that's not the yeah. same physics principle no there, i know yeah, anyway I, I know it's not the same but it's also projection but you're, you're alluding yeah. to actually a really good point that these artists uh struggled with so they said hey that's me on the television, but it's not quite me. And there's a great uh, video recording by Nancy Holt and Richard Serra. Actually, everyone was in on this game. Richard Serra, the sculptor, working with Nancy Holt, another another artist, they made this work called Boomerang that was kind of fundamental to what you're talking about at the time. And in Boomerang, Nancy Holt is in a television studio, actually. So she wasn't doing this in like um, in her studio. So some artists did use like television facilities at the time. Some so, couldn't afford the, to have their own videos set. And in this video, she's listening to a slightly delayed recording of what she's saying in real time, right? And 
and to get at and she's trying to get at this point that you're talking about which is that hey like it's me but it's like slightly not me and it's disorienting like when i do performances and i look at myself in my laptop which i do just like the performance artists in the 1970s if i don't flip it to be a mirror like i have to like i have to actually write code to flip it so that it makes sense to me like a mirror but if i yeah, don't otherwise you're confused but if i don't do that yeah it creates this um yeah this confusion or this cognitive load that's that that makes me very self-aware of and it <laughs> makes me it I, even lifting my arm i'll be like that my, why is my arm well this is on the this is exactly what what interests me in art is this fundamental research on perception mm-hmm. yeah and that's what it was about so these artists uh talked about this and thought about it. And in Nancy Holt and Richard Serra's video, Nancy Holt stumbles over the words. She can't even speak. It sounds like she's drunk, right? It's a really hilarious video. I'll put in the show notes. And in these artist studios, like artists like, uh, you know, I mentioned like Vito Conchi, but he, uh, like I'll, I'll pull out another more interesting one, which is like Martha Rosler. They start to talk about, well, this is my reflect. This is my reflection. <clears throat> and because I'm self-aware, like, you know, I'm aware of my perception. I can also make others aware of the way I'm perceived. And they start to reflect not just themselves and that awkwardness of their perception, but of the whole, what I call like media stack. So they look at like the history of television. They, they ask the question like, well, what is it for me, like a young woman to be on television? And what would I say if I were on television? They start to like, the mirror is more than the technology, right? So the reflection becomes not just a reflection of how the technology changes one's image, but how the meaning of that technology, and in that case, that would be all of television history, right, changes the meaning of what I'm saying. And so for me to present myself on TV as a young woman in that era uh, was a really uh, important thing because men had dictated what how, how I was reflected back to the world up until that moment, right? So for the first time, women could you know could control their own reflection and the world could perceive women in a different way so like martha rosler made this great video called the semiotics of the kitchen and she really plays with this like women in the kitchen kind of stereotype on video in such a way that she like makes it very uncomfortable like you just said like makes you very aware of the perception that has been created um, and that that perception has been created outside of her control. But guess what? Now she's back in control. Anyway, and that's why you see a lot of feminists, you know, coming out of performance. And of course, the body being included in this makes it, you know, fundamentally important. But into this era of what was called performance for the camera in the 1970s, a lot of feminists sort of reclaim this media as their own. And that's still true today. And why you have like cyber feminists, and we'll do another podcast on that probably at some point. Yeah. But and it, but uh, one of the key things for me as a viewer, because. I, I don't make performance uh, yeah. as artworks, but as a viewer, there's a famous video online of a like a really bad art school performance. Like the typical, if you're not on art school and you think of <laughs> art as the most annoying thing, it's a, it's a girl talking about her inner demons, and then she puts her hands in her pants and she's on a period, and she smears her period blood on her face. Yeah. And as a YouTube, it became a viral hit, but. There's none of the awkwardness of being there. There's something so awkward when you're at a bad performance, yeah. regardless if you think this is a good or bad performance. But there's something of going to a live performance and you're not sure what the duration is. Mm-hmm. So you're not sure you can walk out and there's a lot of friends there and it's rude to walk out. Right. But you're like, I'm really not enjoying this. This is really terrible. Why would I, Why am I forced to spend time here? Well, if it's another two minutes, I guess I can wait. Well, but I would if just it's argue. another 25 yeah. minutes... 
I'd rather go out. So you have this, everybody in the room is like, oh God, how long am I? But when it's a YouTube movie and you're watching the people suffering, the audience is just annoyed and you can scroll through the timeline. It's very funny. It's, mm. it's, it's this completely, so this idea that um, a recorded performance is not a performance and it's not pure, it's a different thing and it's a very, <clears throat> it's a more free uh, and yeah, you yeah. Can rewind. Well, you can go into details of the performance. Like I said, after 1969, there, the, this concept of not of of a performance not being a performance unless it's recorded doesn't really make sense anymore because the recording is the performance. Um, so, or it can be the performance. Or it can be, or they they they're complementary. What do you say? They they complement each other. Uh, they're different. Like performance are yeah. evolved to be to include technology. Um, and that's why, like, when I see traditional performance, like, if I see someone licking bones for 24 hours, I'm like, that's great. That's, like, a really nice way of evoking an older history. But it's like someone doing a Jackson Pollock today, right? You're like, that's so, Yeah, how do you kitsch. feel about Tino, Tino Segal? Well, he's, I mean, Tino Segal's doing different things. I would say I'm not as drawn to that type of performance because I consider, I mean, Tino Segal's working within the history of theatricality too right like and he and he uh, doesn't allow uh, just to explain Tina Segal is kind of a performance purist and he yeah. doesn't allow any type of documentation and he doesn't when he sells the work there's no physical trace it's sold and he would argue a, that he's probably the top what quote unquote performance artist in the world right now right yeah yeah but he's or always the, yeah. he, he's the purist so when he sells the work it's it's sold in front of a, a lawyer with an auditory yeah. contract and it's a cash transaction so I think he doesn't pay taxes but as far as like stereotypes go what a lot of people do consider performance art is basically a re reproduction of Carolee Schneeman's work from the 1960s specifically yeah like it, it feels like he puts piece. a dot on the eye well, well Carolee Schneeman did like, a lot of these like basic like seminal most important feminist performances like Meat Joy where she's like sort of like rolling around with people with like raw meat and like or Scroll where she's pulling you know a, a text out of her like as a tampon out of her uh, vagina and like there's period blood all over it those kind all those cliches she did that originally and that was a radical and important time it's just it doesn't need to be redone anymore that's why I say it's like Tina Segal's doing something new uh, ish but like no one needs to see a new like well, a new take on a lot Carly of, Schneeman. Yeah, a lot of that feels a bit like something like the White Stripes. It's new-ish, mm -hmm. but yeah, 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 exactly. It, like I said, it's like zombie formalism didn't last very the long. Strokes because we're like, yeah, the bands you know. like that. Like, yeah, it sounds good. <clears throat> yeah, like we don't need more modernist paintings because it turns out like the modernists did a great job, right? Like sometimes people can add a little bit. It's like we all love the '80s and we love synthesizer music, but we don't. You know, like, we don't need that much more of it. Every once in a while, it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That sounds like the 80s. So like, well, let me go back and listen to my favorites from the 80s. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I, like I, I think those comparisons are not that interesting, but I do think that there's a problem in terms of perception of what is performance art. So today, performance art is mostly performed on the Internet, I would say. Most of the top performers that I might refer to are on online. Do you mean the sort of bedroom webcam performance? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, early on, I know, you know, noted people that, that stood out to me when I was starting out as an artist, like people, uh, and then as I continued, but um, people like Petra Courtright and Amelia Allman and Hirsch, uh, it was a lot of women actually uh, were had strong influences on me because they did what I talked about earlier, which is they took control of the mirror, right? And they said, "This is this is the reflection that I see, and I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it around." And in the art, you know, the artists of the 1970s, they called this persona. 
And now you see artists calling it persona again. Thank God. Like I, I think it's really well, important. Well, yeah, because we persona this. is a is a mainstream idea now. Because now we, it is, but it started. Everybody back in the is 70s. performing for the internet now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Raphael. So now we're getting back to the. You're welcome. <laughs> You're making my good point for me. So we get back to the iPhone in a way. Uh, through that lens, right? Like everyone is reproducing their own reflection, right? And remediating it and repackaging it and, and kind of owning it. Uh, they're all performing for the camera. You get to this iPhone and well, what's the feature that they come out with like to demonstrate the power of this thing? An emoji. A poop, like a poop mask. Poop mask. <laughs> yeah, poop mask, right? And so yeah. this is and that's the interesting thing that this the, even they commented like oh who would have thought the future and the culmination of 5000 years of human research would be a poop mask. Well I can think of a few people who would have thought of that in the 1970s yeah. right like uh, William Wegman would have thought of that when he made a video of just his belly you know laughing as a as if it was <laughs> anthropomorphic right that yeah. at the end of the day right like we the people are are the media right and we control the media and we control our own reflection. And the way we are reflecting right now on our current period uh, is is with emoji. <laughs> and these and the and and as I like, think it's I, I think emoji are the only answer to this crazy world. So yeah, I, I do think we need to need them. Well, what are they? Which you know we could do a whole episode on, but they're this oversimplification of human emotion, right? Into like candy coated little. They also pills. go back a little bit to Egyptian hieroglyphs, like the the alphabet when it was still figurative. Mm. Oh right, yeah. And so yeah, there are like ways. If you want to write the word I, you just draw an I. You don't have to write E Y E. So in a way, they're these universal symbols for communication. Yeah, so the the alphabet, for example, capital A. If you if you just visualize that in front of you, the a triangle with a stick in the middle. Uh, if you turn it around, it's the head of a bull. That's where it comes from. So a lot of things come from figurative pictograms, uh, depictions of things we know. Mm -hmm. And so emoji kind of go back to that. Like the the alphabet is very useful and it's very fast, but mm. sometimes it doesn't say enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking though, like <clears throat> that in the history of communication and artistic expression, the emoji is is like is visual shorthand for something that you can't express verbally, and that's why it's interesting. I think in the history of art, right? Like that, I could I could say cool, but if I use a certain sequence of emoji, I there it says more than cool. It's way cooler. It's way cooler. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm also like. I also think there's a collectivity or like something communal about emoji that these are symbols well, it, yeah, that because we read it's cross language yeah, yeah and we redefine what they mean together we don't wait for like Apple to tell us what an emoji means right and that's what I also think is interesting about this what technology. the eggplant emoji means and things like exactly, that exactly exactly and it brings me back to the early performers and the and the um, Fluxus artists who came up with this concept of a happening you know uh Caprao came up famously with this like concept of a happening, which is that not only like, and this is what's different about theater and all of the other stuff that you're talking about, is that like, not only am I I going to perform, I'm going to perform you, right? Like when we all in a happening, everyone gets together and the audience performs the work, similar to how like um, you know your favorite artist Soloit would have you perform a drawing. Alan Caprao would have us perform 
you know, happening by all yelling like, hey, at the same time, like in rapid succession, though that wasn't one of his works, but like, you know, we, that we can perform together is like, is the ultimate, in my opinion, performative act. Like I love, I love performances that are solitary, don't get me wrong, but what I love about performance on the internet and the opportunity we have to express ourselves within that new media context is the collectivity of it, right? It's like why I love this podcast so much because the listeners yeah, get involved. it is really fun. Yeah. Should we should we pause there for a commercial break? Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Do 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 do. <laughs> Perfect pause for a commercial break. So, um, should we just uh, roll? We yeah, don't let's have roll to with it. Yeah. yeah. Dear Jeremy, my friend and artist colleague, I have something that I want to share with you. It's something that worries me. Oh, what is it, Raphael? Don't you ever get anxious about one day not being able to generate new ideas? I know, it can be so frustrating when you're in a creative block. Like you need to keep ideas flowing, but the creative spark is just not there. That's a situation where... Yeah, and also how frustrating it is to brainstorm in teams. People don't participate and they see creativity as a very complex thing. Well, I see your point, but I have good news for you. There is a tool that solves that. No way. Which one? It's called trigger cards. Oh, wow. Sounds awesome. Tell me more. It's a set of physical cards with what-if questions that can be used to solve any briefing or creative challenge. Oh, I see. So let's say I need to make a new installation. How would that work? You would take a random card and read it. Like, for example, what if you played with people's fears? <laughs> ah, that's great. So I could make an installation about digital spiders, like Google spiders, all crawling all over people. Well, yes, that's an interesting idea. But yes, that's what the cards are about. They trigger you to think of solutions to your problem. So it's like Brian Eno's oblique strategies, but more pragmatic, less poetry, more action. Yeah, exactly. And you can use it in design, art, and advertising. Wow, really awesome. <laughs> Where can I get some? I love that dramatic pause. Just order them <laughs> online. Go to trytriggers.com, and you can even use the code GOODPOINT at checkout for a 10% discount. Wow, that's a first. Can't I just buy them on Amazon? You really love Amazon. Yes, you can, but only in the USA and without the promotional code. Oh, I see. You're right. It's better to give my money directly to the creator and not to that evil company called Amazon. <laughs> that's right. Trytriggers.com and use promotional code GOODPOINT. All one word. Trigger Cards, the perfect brainstorming tool for creatives. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alejandro. For uh, it was, That was sent in by Alejandro Masfera uh, for sending that in. And I have the cards in my possession. They're beautiful. I'm about to try them with my team. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've apologized several times to Alejandro for not finding a situation where I can actually get all of my team members you together. caught up in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that seems to be a problem that if anyone else has a product that can solve the problem of getting people together, forcing them to play a card game, <laughs> uh, please, please let me know. <clears throat> anyway, the cards are beautiful. And, uh, and I, I, th I think I'm going to try them with my team soon. I hope they, uh, they free us from our creative challenges. Thanks so much, Alejandro. So where were we? Um, oh, yeah, we were talking about happenings and the collective performance of the well, Internet. Well, I, I, I think maybe one of the key problems of... Uh, performance art is is this hierarchical thinking of like in a, a defensive position saying well we have to de dematerialize art there's something wrong we're proposing something and that's the truth mm -hmm. and the other things are not true mm -hmm. and so you get into this weird area where it's like yeah if you if you propose that the happening is the artwork then immediately people are like well does that 
disqualify all the other artists. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you get is my mom saying, like, I'm a performance artist as she makes, you know, uh, like has drinks with me or whatever. But And I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I hear what you're saying, which is that, <clears throat> and even if you look up the definition of performance art, it's incredibly vague, almost like to a great fault, right? Like, it's like, it can be any number of people or just a single person who, you know, move their body or don't or you know like it's just these generic terms um and that's why i kind of position myself within a particular history um because it it's what makes sense for me um and sure like and, and, and yeah part of why it's defensive is that it's so hard to monetize so you have to create uh, a system around it of enthusiasts who will create uh festivals like performer to support it and it it Things that sell then create an infrastructure automatically, but things yeah. that don't sell, you have to create academic interest and well, uh, yeah. And I'll tell, I'll share something with the audience that might maybe you know surprise them is that I've never performed at a performance art festival or been included in any performance art texts or. But I've called my myself like a video artist and a performance artist, you know, for for ten or fifteen years and. A lot of performance art festivals and such, they, they are still, they have created their own definitions um, and they just don't jam with what I'm doing or interested in mm -hmm. doing. And with what, so there's, there are these other histories that, that came out of performance art. There are lots of them. Like it was a spark or explosion, right? And I'm not, I'm not actually accusing them of, of like not including me in that being a bad thing. I'm just saying like so many different practices are now informed by what I, you know, what happened in the 1960s. Um, you know, like you could say, uh, you know, photographers were heavily influenced by that period, right? Like Cindy Sherman, you know, was very influenced by that period in art. Um, but no one would, I mean, you might call her a performance artist, but she's not going to be included in a performance art festival or context, right? So, um, and she's doing amazing work on Instagram. I'm not sure if you're on her Instagram feed, <laughs> but she's like, yeah. you know, she's playing up the filter game in, in fantastic ways and like... Um, in do, taking selfies in hospital beds and stuff. But w back to the iPhone, what I think is most exciting, what's most fundamental to this conversation is that Apple, for the first time, and I've been waiting for this moment for so long, Raphael, I can't tell you, <laughs> they made the camera that looks at you better than the camera that looks at the world, right? Yeah. And yeah. it, like, this is so. Can you so explain wh why the, the front camera is better than the back camera? Well, the, it's got less megapixels, but it's got all this depth technology. And so, and it can it, do it. It also lot has more. a special lighting thing? Yeah, that's in software. But yeah, like, because it has oh, yeah. the depth, it, it can it do. It has theatrical lighting. It, it can things do things like to your face. But this is what the beginning of what I will, you, what I believe will be a long trajectory towards, like, eventually. Maybe, eventually, the front uh, facing uh, camera will be the but camera. Uh, at a fundamental level, the the extras that the front camera has, it has the depth sensor, and because there's depth sensing, they can computational photography is very different than lens photography. Mm -hmm. So you can you can be it can be a foggy day, but you can make it look like a sunny day, or the other way around. Yeah, you that, can do that, that's the future of photography. Yeah, and I, the future of photography, like this is the funny thing about companies like Apple. So who are all the people that work at Apple? They're all people like in their fifties and sixties, right? And so they're not really in tune with the way people are using their devices. For years, people have been taking selfies, right? Instagram was founded in what was it, two thousand and ten? It's similar to when the iMac came out and they didn't include a CDR. They're like, who burns CDs? <laughs> Well, it, yeah, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit like that, you know, where it's like, 
they they rejected this idea as disgusting, but like people did it anyway, right? And they applied filters to their face to make the, the, the camera look better. <laughs> and now they really gave in. It's like, okay, you guys, <clears throat> this is the future of computation. Here, but, but like to have fun to reject identity, you know, as a corporation, and to and to say, also to recast millennials as these selfish. So in the 1970s, the terms uh, the, uh, there was an essay that was written called "The Aesthetics of of Narcissism." Um, by Rosalind Krauss and the the aesthetics of narcissism. This is in the 1970s, right? And still today, we're like, all oh, those people taking pictures of themselves, that's narcissism. Well, who's saying that, right? People who are having their photo taken by other people who don't need to take photos of themselves. It's not the aesthetics of narcissism. It's not narcissism. It's it's well, like the, it's about celebrating the individual and it's about empowering people. It's the, the, there's always a, a good side and a bad side. I, sure. I do think there's more awkwardness in in our generation than generations before because you can be in your cocoon and it gets really hard to interact with other people. So that's right. that's the danger of a when the when the front fi- when the f- camera facing you becomes more important than the camera facing the world. But here's the thing, and, like it. It, the camera face yeah I agree Like, I mean I, I definitely speak to a lot of people who more and more just have a really hard time going out and talking to people yeah and then I guess you can sell them drugs to overcome that but then what I would say is it's not about a front facing camera because then you're putting a wall between you or you're mediating the layer between no, you and no no but w- w- what it is is if you enhance your appearance online mm-hmm. and that's the way you broadcast yourself and then you uh, have to and I think this is a particular art thing where you go to an opening and it's a cold concrete room with fluorescent right lighting right, right. and you look so amazing <laughs> on social media and then you get to the opening and you're just this uh, average looking person. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, 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 I think I mentioned this before but there's a in Infinite Jest David Foster Wallace he talks about this video app that enhances your features. Uh-huh. It kind of predicted this, and that people become really scared to go outside because they look so great in, with well, these yeah. video enhancements. That was—it's always been my like secret to aging—is like spend more time with my computer, altering my appearance. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't need plastic surgery; I just need a web camera. But and, yeah. and remember, early web cameras so were low the, the, resolution, yeah, it, so you looked better. Yeah, every technology has uh, pros and cons, but uh, it does. Werner Herzog is always saying the digital will make us more lonely, and I don't know if that's yeah. True. And Sherry Turkle says, you know, we're living alone together. But then, like maybe, like as a good point, I can say like Alan Caprile, you know, invented the happening. And what I see is, you know, in in sort of in terms of actually the way people are behaving is they're promoting themselves, which I believe is is fundamentally important. That like marginal voices. Take your selfie. I, I'm still going to stand there. I'm going to say that's right. That's the right thing to do. <laughs> but then, like, get together and share experiences together. And you're seeing that. You're seeing like music festivals are bigger than ever. Like, yeah, or, yeah, like yeah. people are getting together in massive numbers to protest, to do, to rally, and all this, of these things yeah, are yeah, yeah. those are really exciting things, you know. And that's there, not. There, there's. I think there's a constant uh, value judgment of the selfie being a, a very because there's images of people rioting and, and anti-fascist movements, but also taking selfies. And that makes it feel superficial, but oh, they're broadcasting what they're doing. So that also makes it powerful. But there's just something, same way that, uh, maybe that's, it goes back to performance being pure and recording being unpure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean... So um, we think of the selfie as unpure. I think again, like I think that that's top down. That's why I get so angry about it because I think if you're an African American, yeah, but or I'm just trying or, to, I'm just trying to think why we think of the recording as 
or the selfie as something uh, because it's what, people think of it as vanity, right? And vanity yeah. is to be reviled. But I think that that that's some that's a message that is like really elitist, in my opinion. Like this is just this is my opinion. I get to express it. <laughs> yeah. Um, because the history of of reflection and vanity is that you know is mostly guess what your is shame like you're not good enough right like you're not the rock of you know you're not this rockefeller family if you go all the way back right like you're not the king you're not the queen well right? yeah you did a project where you took portraits of ordinary people because traditionally it would be powerful people that were portrayed yeah and uh, yeah, yeah and i you know i empowered them with like augmentations and software and stuff like that and i, I this is like my fun, the, like i will not change it would be very hard for you that's to change that's your thesis my, yeah, yeah it's my thesis <laughs> And when the, I, the, I'm very thankful the world is reenacting every day. Um, it's more and more true every year. And that's very exciting for me. And that's why, again, even though it's just the, like the iPhone, and I don't think that Apple actually even understands what they're creating anymore, which I think is also another thing to talk <laughs> about. Um, <laughs> and, and why maybe like the next company to come along, like watch for your stock, like the stock to come along, where it's a company that understands that the self is more is as important as the whole, but not you know nothing is more important than the than the than you, the consumer or the creator. Um, the company that comes along and actually does that with sincerity and jest is like is going to you know change the world again. And Apple tried to do that. Remember when Apple relaunched, Steve Jobs came back, and what did, what was the first ad he ran? You know, here's I. it was the here's to the crazy runs ones, right? And then he put yeah. I in front of everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew this, but like I, I really don't think that they know this anymore. And I and I and very few people or very few companies really look at it that way. There, it's all but, me, so me, 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 me. When you see people in a tourist destination taking selfies in front of a monument, there's not no part of you just things like that's kind of lame. Um, I think that like a lot of people would you would you take a selfie in front of well here like the, the Mona thing, Lisa <clears throat> the thing we haven't talked about is when the resist the resistance so like there there's a, there's a power relationship and in the worst cases if you're not aware of what I just talked about you let the technology use you right so you say they put you know so basically they put a camera on the front of the camera and you're like oh they're telling me to take a picture of myself I will. What should I put myself in front of? I know something that's more important than me, right? What's more important than me? Oh, the Mona Lisa or this monument. Now I'm important by association with this thing. There's still like a naive like beauty in that gesture. Like yeah, I'm as yeah, important yeah. as the Washington Monument, right? It's not just a picture of the Washington Monument. It's me in relationship with it. But there's also something a little bit tragic when you're not, when it feels like you're just performing for the technology without any awareness of how it works. Um, I mean, I, I, that, that is really like the, the fundamental tension. Like there, I always talk about this, like, um, you know, Marx had this great, dis Karl Marx is just make this communist for a second, had this distinction between like a tool and a machine and tool is something you use and a machine is something that uses you, right? Like if you're working in a factory, you have no choice whether to pull the lever on the conveyor belt, right? Or yeah, I do feel like that a lot. Like, uh, yeah, and if you're like a slave, and like, okay, machine, tell me what to do. Yeah, if you're a slave to the technology, you're just waiting for it to tell you what to do. And there's a great book that like encapsulates the way the technology sector thinks about this by Steve Krug, uh, like Steve Krug, double G. I never know how to pronounce it. Anyway, he's like he's like the equivalent of the Andy Warhol of web design. Uh, <laughs> he wrote a book called "Don't Make Me Think," 
that's kind of like a seminal web design book. And you know, much of the internet has been designed to like take away choices from you. But that's why I actually think companies like Snapchat um, have like kind of they have an advantage that they're they're they've scoped out that it's hard you know hard for people to copy, which is like they made their interface hard to use, but they made it creative and like. You know, companies where you're allow- they allow you to customize more and more aspects, and we go through waves of this, right? But as if they allow the more customization and expression that they allow, the the more the less of a machine it is, and potentially the more of a tool it is. Um, but artists always find a way to turn machines into tools, and that's and why we have to celebrate art, right? When you talk about Fluxus influencing you, mm-hmm. most of what you absorbed about Fluxus was through documentation. Because that's it, 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 it's to me that that's the key. Yeah. Uh, no, you're problem right. with performance art is that you can't you don't get to study the works ever. It's not possible. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and uh, I didn't mention that Chris Burden, you know, had this tragic experience when I was in grad school, where I was working as an you know assistant in the school and I intending over the video art library. And as I was sort of dusting the shelves one day, I came across a videotape that said Chris Burden documented works. And I had thought there was no such thing, right? As we were talking about. And then I put the video cassette, I like blew off the dust, put it, it was like a, it was like kind of a gremlin's mouth or something, put it in the the quarter inch video player, press play. And then like, there's, this is online now, so I'll, I'll put it up in the show notes, but there's like Chris Burden's face, really tight crop. He's sweating. He's really uncomfortable. He's like, uh, uh, I didn't want to do this, but they forced me to. It's almost like, it's like a hostage tape. And then he walks through like a DVD commentary of all this hidden footage that he had recorded uh, both film was that video and video only in in your library or was spread it was it's spread now it's on ubu web if anyone wants to look it up but yeah. it, it at that time this was the only example that i knew of that existed so it was controversial yeah i think now it's in electronic arts intermixes library and stuff like that like it's but it, for me it was like what is this like what is this discovery as it, as a, as a student yeah. it wasn't but well it, known. it's it's kind of a tragedy where we know it's about the moment and it happening and mm-hmm. but we also know that in the end, most people will absorb it mediated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my good point is like, don't feel bad for taking a selfie because you're a performance artist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. maybe what I mean is that a selfie is a, is a recorded action, so that's already yeah. different. It, like, you you get the genuine experience by seeing the selfie. But what I mean with performance, that maybe. Apart from performance art being uncommercial, it's also interesting that it might be ahistorical in the in the sense that mm-hmm. um, it happens. It can't really be documented. You can see the documentation, but that's not really it. So, but that's the in, history in of painting, all art. In painting, no, no. But in painting, every step is immediately archived. It, yeah. it, I mean, the essence of painting is the, right. the the freezing of a human movement. Yeah. So the hand is doing something, and it's it's there, and it'll last definitely for five hundred years. Yep. So yep, yep. you're constantly there's this constant baggage, and it's very heavy. I would just argue in the digital era <clears throat> that the same is true about all of your movements, and your, even your heartbeat, for God's sakes, is being recorded. Your resting heart rate, your like active heart. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. the body, like, here's my argument: is that this is my final good point, and actually that I have to go because I'm late for work, but like. <laughs> <laughs> that currently you are performing for technology continuously. There's never a moment in the day, even when you're sleeping, you're you know you're te- you're, you're you're monitoring your sleep, <laughs> where you're recording your gestures, your movements, your reactions in real time. 
The difference is those that choose to like think about those consciously, to that awkward thing that we talked about earlier, right? Like those who choose to take that awkwardness and reverse it and, you know, repackage it and call it performance art. Uh, those are people that are, that are, that are making that are artists. That's performance art today. Those that are just like choosing to let that dictate their lives. Those are people that are, you know, potentially enslaved by technology. And I encourage you to fight back to misuse the technology as artists have always done. But there isn't no, like performance art is no longer pulling like a text out of your vagina. But certainly if you live stream that, <laughs> hey, like and it's it's your it's it, that's your choice, uh, then, then maybe you're, you're making performance art. That's like There's a, plenty of a websites sweep, where you can pay to see that. It's a sweeping judgment. Live stream. I just don't think that performance exists outside of the realm of technology anymore. That's kind of that's my point. I, I okay. know there are people that would disagree with me, but. Yeah. yeah, I think Tina Segal is trying to fight that, but it, actually all the stuff, even if it's not uh, filmed the way it's broadcast, it is us saying this through technology. Well, I've seen his work, but only on Instagram, you know, just FYI. You know, it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. much more to yeah. talk about. I wish I had more time, but... Uh, yeah, well, we can come back to it in a few episodes. I'm writing a, t- a, a, a like a text for a, a book about this for, uh, right now, so it's like top of mind. So I'll share that when that comes out. Um, yeah, much more. Please detail. do. Yeah. So we have a field recording. Are you going to write it in emoji? <laughs> yeah, it's written entirely in uh, my in, in in my emoji and uh, sweat from and my forehead. Emoji. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. And I'm using uh, wolf's blood for <laughs> portion Sounds of the text. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, well, let's wrap this up. You have to go to work. Uh, we're going to listen to a field recording. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a field recording of some people who were brainstorming, and they were interrupted by a truck. In Scotland. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And they, they felt like that was kind of the metaphor for how hard it is to get something done in the art world when the real world is constantly bothering you. Backing so, up into you. <laughs> yeah, so this is a recording by Paula... Buscavica and uh, thank you for that and uh, apologies for the delayed episode and see you again hear you again next week yeah thanks uh, thanks everyone really appreciate all the ads and and uh, field recordings keep sending them in yeah keep them coming and uh, hey maybe even review us on iTunes maybe one day we'll make it into the top 50 <laughs> but it doesn't matter uh, we just enjoy having you listen thanks so much yeah thank you for listening to the number one art podcast <laughs> yeah if we say so <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Bye.